Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We are going to continue what we started ministering on last week. We've been looking at the, the three types of, of baptisms, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock you all. I am very briefly going to review. We looked last week at, at the baptism into the body of Christ, and we used our foundation scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. That is the, that's Paul's way of describing the new birth experience. When we get saved, when we exercise, as, as Paul said in Romans 10, when we believe with our heart and confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, then we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. There are two other baptisms besides that. And, and, and one, what we're going to look at in detail today, is water baptism. And we always, or t- I, I, that's, that's a dangerous word, we tend to look at water baptism just from the standpoint of, of a, an outward expression of remission of sins, dying with Christ, being resurrected to, to life. But we, as, as believers, we tend to focus on the negative side of that. that, that and, and, and Jesus did die for our sins. Don't, I'm not trying to make light of that. But Jesus dying for our sins apart from the resurrection does us no good. It's one of the reasons as Protestants, and I'm, I'm not preaching against the Roman Catholic Church today. I have a lot of friends that are Catholics and, and they're saved and I know they're saved. I'm, I'm not a part of that church because we have some real doctrinal differences. And one of the differences you will see, you can't see our cross now because we have the screen down, But when you see a Catholic cross versus a Protestant cross, a Catholic cross has Jesus on the cross. Protestants have the cross empty. The difference part of that is just difference of emphasis. What is your emphasis? Well, their emphasis is the death of Christ, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ. Blood of Christ is is important. The death of Christ is important. But if you can't go on to the resurrection and see that cross empty and see yourself filled with Him and being part of Him, being part of His body, so that when in John, in 1 John, says that as He is, we are now in this world. We have to so identify with Jesus and the resurrected Jesus that it's always in our heart and always in our mind that I am seated with Him in heavenly places. That's my position. That's my authority. I have been raised with Him. Yes, I died with Him, but it's the resurrection that gives me the power to fulfill that. And and we're going to look today, but we looked last week at the the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that we looked at in in Corinthians, excuse me, Corinthians um, chapter 12, is God manifesting Himself through us for ministry. The whole purpose that, of us being here 
is to minister to people. If we're not ministering to people, and I don't mean this to be harsh, but it's harsh. <laughs> what good are we? I mean, I'll, I, let me just be, let me use this analogy. I have a garage at home, and it's full of stuff. It is useless as far as storing cars. I can't put a car in it. I have a garage full of tools. Lots of tools. Spent lots of money over lots of years acquiring my tools. They're worthless to me at this point because I don't ever use them. I'm not building anything. I've, built, I've remodeled houses. I've, I've built church buildings. I've done all kinds of construction things. I've repaired my own cars. I don't do that anymore. This stage in my life, if it needs to be fixed, it either gets thrown away or it goes somewhere and I'll let somebody else fix it. If I need something done in my house, I pay somebody to come in and do it because I don't crawl up under cabinets anymore. One hour's work under a cabinet is three weeks of pain. That's worth some money to hire somebody to come fix that. And so my tools, I have them, they're valuable, but they're useless. I don't, they're useless, not because they don't have value intrinsically, but they're useless to me because I don't put them to use. If we don't allow God to put us to use as Christians in this world, we have value. We are intrinsically valuable to God. Jesus came and died for us. That's how much value he places on us. But we are useless to the body of Christ if we don't get out and do the work that God's called us to do. But we cannot do that without the anointing of the Holy Spirit on us to empower us. He said at the, at the end of Mark 16, the believers, not preachers, not pastors, not evangelists, believers will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Our job is to lay hands. His job is to see that they recover. But without that anointing on our lives, usually that will not happen. We need that baptism of the Spirit. We need to surrender and say, God, use me. I surrender my life to you for ministry. And if we, if we don't do that then we have no purpose. Or we, we, let me rephrase that. We may have a purpose, but we're not fulfilling our purpose. And that brings us today to water baptism. Because with water baptism, we have to understand, the, the, the first baptism of being baptized into the body of Christ, Paul goes through very extensively the different parts of the body. And he says there are, the parts that are lowly in our consideration, God exalts. You know, I, I forget who I was talking to. We were talking about someone who had gone overseas and, and, and the church that they were preaching in, their habit was to wash the feet of someone who came to minister to them. And part of it was because it was a, a third world country. Most of the people wore sandals because it was hot. And they would come in and their feet would be dirty and they just would wash their feet. And this guy, it was like his feet never saw the light of day. And he really didn't want them to wash his feet because he's like me. He's got old man feet. They're ugly. You know, when I was 17, I had good looking feet. Today, I got feet that look at him. I think, where, where did these monstrosities come from? Well, he was a little embarrassed. 
But, but he realized that, that for them, this was a way to minister to, to him. And, but what he realized was, and I think it was on purpose, God, it was the tradition in, in the Jewish culture that when you came into a house because they were dry, they were dusty, they wore sandals, that a servant would wash your feet. Well, they, they paid particular attention to the feet, not just because they were dirty, but because those were some of the less honorable parts of the body. I mean, ladies will spend a fortune getting their nails painted. Occasionally, they'll get the pedicure and get their, their toenails painted. But I know a lot of ladies will do their hands and never do their feet. They don't want anybody touching their feet. You will put makeup all over your face. Guys, will, guys may not use makeup, although... God help us. Some of our younger crews are using a lot of makeup, which, oh, come Lord Jesus. Um, I digress, but we will, I've, I've known guys that they'll tease their wives about spending so much time in front of the mirror, putting makeup on, getting their hair just right, and then I watch them, and they're, every time they can't pass the mirror, they don't pull a comb out, and they're, they're checking themselves out. It's one of the reasons people tease me about being bald, and it said, look, I haven't had a bad hair day in 20 years, you know, which the usual comeback is, and I'm not so sure that every day isn't a bad hair day. But I don't care. It, you know, I put my windows down, I don't worry. I just let my hair blow. It can go wherever it wants to. That, that's not a lack of vanity on my part, but my, my point is the parts that we present to people, we take care to give them honor, to make them look good. But there are parts of our bodies that no one ever sees, and we, we kind of hide those, you know? It's, um, well, I'll just leave that alone. Jesus, on the other hand, when he speaks of the body, he says the parts that are the least, I want to exalt the most. Because well, let me tell you, you may think your toes are useless, but you break one. And you see how useless that thing is. It's hard to walk with a broken toe. It hurts. And when, you're, when that little toe hurts, your whole body hurts. It only takes a little injury in a small part of your body and your entire body says, whoa, wait a minute, back this thing up, we got to deal with this. Well, we look and, and we're ready to put honor. And let me just be right up front. Everybody's ready to honor the pastor. Everybody's ready to honor the evangelist or the prophet or the apostle. Why? Because we're out in front of everybody. I speak here every, every Sunday morning. I spend hours preparing a message to try to convey some stuff. And people say, they give, they, they'll come clap you on the back. They say, that's good. I really got a lot out of it. And I love that. You know, I'm not saying don't do it. But there's also people that do things in this church and do things in other churches that no one ever sees what they do. And God says, I'm watching that. I'm watching that part of my body, and I will exalt you. Now, some of it may only come in heaven. I know, and, and I not, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not going to criticize Billy Graham. But Billy Graham got a lot of accolades. He, he got thousands, if not millions, of people born again. But you know what? It could be, and this is a could be, okay? It could be that when, when the rewards get handed out in heaven, that there may be three or four little prayers, praying saints that God pulls Billy Graham up and says, 
You had a great ministry. Now let me show you why you had a great ministry. And he pulls three or four people that all they ever did was sit in their closet. No one knew them. No one knew what they were doing. And they were praying. Praying intensely for people to get born again. And God used that prayer to enable Billy Graham to do what he did. He gets the credit. And I'm not... I'm not Casting aspersions on what he did, that's an important part. But without them, he can't do what he does. We all have that part. But we have to understand, the new birth is a one-time, I'm done, I'm born again, I'm in the body, and I'm secure. Water baptism, and I know this is going to sound a little strange, water baptism and the baptism of the Spirit are an ongoing condition and an ongoing renewal. And I'll show you what I mean. But first, let me set a couple of, of, of examples here. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. The, the, uh, what I want to, to set here is that we are saints, first of all. We, we are, I know we're Protestants and, and well, I'm, I don't hang on to um, the Catholic faith and we don't believe in, you know, sanctifying or however, whatever that expression is. We're all saints. But at the same time, we're always ready to say, well, so-and-so now, they're a really strong Christian. I just don't have that kind of strength. You have a lot of faith. I don't have a lot of faith. That may be true, but it doesn't have to stay that way. I have grandkids from 14 to 1. None of them have the education that I have. Bar none. None of my kids have the education. Most of you don't have the education I have. That doesn't make me more valuable than them or to you. But they have the ability to not only get that education equal to mine, but to surpass me, as do all of you. It's a choice of how far you want to go. And when it comes to ministry, we are all saints. We are set in the body, and you're either in or you're not in. It's like my, I, have, uh, I had two brothers. I have one left living. That's it. You may want in my family, but my mom and dad are gone. They're not having kids. I have two brothers, one in heaven, one here. My family's not growing. Not that part. Well, the body of Christ, we can add to it, but you are either part of the body or you're not part of the body. But we are in it, and if we are, we are saints. Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. We are called saints. That literally means we are a holy thing. We are pure, we're clean, we're set apart. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That is the requirement for being a saint, for being holy, for being set apart, for being a holy thing and being pure, is you have to keep the commandments of God and have faith in Jesus. Paul said it in Romans 10, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. So you're, you're either unsaved or you're a saint. There's no in-between. There's no qualification. There's no gray area. One or the other, in or out. And once you're in, you're in. Philippians 2.12. 
Even though we are in the body, though, we have some work to do. Philippians 2.12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I've had people have stumbled over that scripture big time for years. That does not mean figure out how to get saved. What that word work out means, and, and, and this may not be the exact meaning in, in the, the, the scripture but, or in the, the Greek, but it is, it is close. It's how you would take, if you are mixing two things, you work something in. If you take dried leather, we used the example before. Jesus said, you know, don't put um, new wine into an old wineskin. Because it will, when the new wine ferments, it will stretch that old wineskin and it will burst. And you'll lose your wine. He said, put new wine in new wineskins. What we don't, what we miss because of our cultural difference is, you can take an old wineskin and make it new again. You do that by rubbing oil in it. You take a dried piece of leather and you take some olive oil or you take some other kind of oil and you start rubbing it in and you rub it in and add more and rub it in and let it soak in and you can refresh and renew that leather to where it's pliable and, and um, um, flexible again. And then you have a new wine skin that you can put new wine in and watch it ferment and when it swells it won't crack and it won't burst. That's what Jesus is telling uh, or Paul's telling us here in Philippians 2.12, you take the salvation that's in you. You have been placed in the body of Christ, baptized into the body. Your spirit is brand new. We saw last week, we are brand new creatures. My body, if I was good looking before I got saved, I'm good looking afterwards. If I'm ugly before, I'm ugly after. Short, tall, bald, hairy, it doesn't matter. Your body doesn't change by getting born again. But your spirit is brand new. It has never existed until the moment you get saved. And at the salvation moment, you went from death to life and you are a brand new spirit. What he's saying here in Philippians is take that what's in the inside of you, and start massaging that and work that out into every area of your life. We have this tendency to compartmentalize things. Here, I've got my church life, I've got my job life, I've got my home life, I've got my, you know, my hobby life, I've got all of these things, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> you have a life. And if, you call, if you're calling on my name, if you're saying that Jesus is your Lord, then everything you do, you have to work Jesus into that. You have to work the anointing of the Holy Spirit into that. That's the new wine. If you look, or the, the, the fresh oil, if you look at the, the story of the uh, Good Samaritan, what did the Samaritan do? He brought wine and he brought oil. Healing and renewal. The Holy Spirit and the anointing to this wounded man. Now, there's a lot more in that story, but those things, he was changing that person by, by putting that oil into his life. Amen? So we need to take what's on the inside of us and work it out. We do that partly through water baptism. Go to Romans 6, and we're going to spend most of our time there. We're going to start in verse 1 of Romans 6. And if you look, 
works quite naturally, and this is, this is a profound statement, don't let me lose you with this, but, but Romans 6 follows Romans 5. So it's, and, and Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. Somebody came along later and added the chapters and the verses so you could refer to it so you didn't just have to go look for one word or look for the sentence. It was just an easy reference. And the chapter breaks and the verses are not inspired. Keep in mind, they're, they're just man-made. But, but chapter 5 has dealt with our faith, Die, how, how Adam brought death and Christ brought life. And then he comes to, to chapter 6 and he, he says the very first phrase, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says that because chapter 5, he brought up this concept that people were preaching then. Some people preach it today. God gets glorified when I come out of sin into grace and I, I publicly display that my sins are forgiven and show off the grace of God. Well, their thought was, well, if... If God gets glorified in me coming out of sin, then I need to sin a lot so I can demonstrate God's grace a lot. Well, it's kind of a simplistic thought, but let me put it in everyday terms. It would be like me going home and, and saying to, to Gina, I know you love me unconditionally, and it is you get more glory if you prove your unconditional love for me. Every time you prove that you just love me because of me, that glorifies you. So I'm going to give you some reason to unconditionally love me, and then I just beat the tar out of her. You laugh. I mean, that's dumb. That's not just dumb. That's dumb to the power of ten. That's what Paul's confronting here in Romans chapter 6. No, we don't sin so that we can demonstrate God's wonderful mercy and grace. We walk in newness of life and walk in grace and stay out of sin. That shows God's mercy and grace, but it also shows God's empowerment. That's what he's starting in here on, on, in, in chapter 6. He answers this question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Those are two words in the English that just don't get it from the Greek. Basically, Paul said, this is the Roberts translation, are you stupid? How shall we, and this is the key, who died to sin live any longer in it? If you died to that sin nature, how can you live in that sin nature? The obvious answer is we can't or shouldn't. Let's put it that way. Verse 3, or do you not know? And that is the key to everything we're going to see beyond here. Do you not know? It's knowledge. And not just knowledge, but knowledge that you are walking out, knowledge that thoroughly imprints on you and changes how you are and who you are. And, and I'll give you an example. When you get married, you become one flesh. Well, before you're married, when you're dating, this is your girlfriend, this is your boyfriend, this is who we are, and you, you sort of identify with one another, but not 
completely. But when you get married, people start looking at you as a couple. But some, somewhere in that process after you're married, you get to looking at you, not just as you, but as us. And if you really want to have a successful marriage, how you have a successful marriage is you don't entertain any thoughts or any ideas or, or, or look at any activities except under the, the guise of us. This isn't, well, I have my hobbies. And I'm not saying that you can't have hobbies that your wife or your husband doesn't enjoy. Sure. If you have something that just floats your boat and your spouse says, I'm sorry, but that sinks my boat, I don't really want to be a part of it. Well, then go do it. But if you devote too much time to that hobby and you neglect your spouse by doing that hobby, you're going to damage that relationship. It was years ago, Gina and I, when we would do marriage counseling, we had a, a list of like 100 different leisure activities and, and if we had couples that were having problems, we would have the husband and the wife sit down. I want you to just go through and you put one, two, three, four, five, depending on one, yeah, I don't really like this. Five, I would love to do this. And you rank every one of these hundred. Now, you could find some, I got a lot of fives. My wife has a lot of fives. None of them are the same categories. So what do you do? You find some threes that you have in agreement. And those are the things that you do for leisure and for fun. But I don't have fun apart from my wife. Now, that doesn't mean that I can never do something. And I'll give you the, 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 the most common example, the football widow. I mean, I really can't identify that with that. I grew up in a high school that had 98 students total. We couldn't even get up a good, um, you know, street football game with the kids, the guys we had in our school, so we never played football. I don't know much about football. I enjoy watching it occasionally, but to sit down and just devour football games, like, why? It's, it's a little bit of it's enjoyable. A whole lot of it gets really boring. But I know guys, they will watch. They'll start on the weekend. They'll watch every professional football. They'll tape some games to watch this one live, and I'll watch that one after it's done. And their family doesn't see them all weekend. I'm just telling you, that'll, that'll, that'll destroy your marriage if you keep doing that, especially if your wife doesn't like football. You find things to do together. That's exactly what Jesus is, or Paul is saying here about us. We, we have been baptized into Christ everything that we do now. We may have things that, yes, this isn't, I enjoy this. I may even have things that my flesh wants to do. And God says, nothing wrong with that. You can do it if you want. But it's not going to profit you. Remember, uh, Paul said, nothing to me is sin. Now, that's a pretty radical statement. Paul just said, I can do anything I want, and it's not sin to me. But not everything I do is profitable. So even though I can do this and I know I can stay in right standing with God, it's going to hinder what I'm doing in the kingdom. And I choose to walk away from those things and do the things that will promote the kingdom and not hinder the kingdom. That's what, he, that's what Paul's trying to get across to us here. Where was I? Well, let's start with verse 3 again. 
Or do you not know that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this is going to be a key phrase here. Verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. The, the emphasis in that verse, in verse 4, is not that we were baptized into Christ's death. It was that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, which is the anointing, which is the presence of God. Remember we, we talked last week about the tabernacle? You've got the, the altar where the blood was shed, and you have the brazen laver where you bathe after you're born again. You still have to clean up. And then you go into the holy place, and you bask in the light of God, and you eat the bread of God, and you commune with God through the prayers of the saints. And there's no veil there, so the ark is exposed to you, and the presence of God is right there. That presence of God is what raised Christ from the dead. And we, because that, that glory is there and we have access to that glory, we need to walk in newness of life. The newness of life that we walk in is walking in the glory of God and allowing the glory of God to change us and transform, transform us and conform us to His will and to His lifestyle. Verse 5, For if we have been united together... And the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, and he's talking here about water baptism. We go down and recognize and identify with the death of Christ. We are immersed in that. We are marked by that. But we are also marked by the resurrection it's the resurrection to newness of life. That is what we, shall, we, we, we need to emphasize. Verse 6, he gets into this. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. When we read that in the English here, we think, well, that means that my sin nature is completely gone. And I have had, I've had many preachers and, and pastors argue with me that we only have one nature, and that's the renewed nature. And I agree with you, but it's, a, it's, it's learning to define the point. I have only one nature, and that is my spirit, and it's reborn, and it's perfect and united with the Holy Spirit. And I've been baptized into the Spirit of God, into the, the body of Christ. But I still have a fleshly body. It still exists. And in my flesh resides the nature of sin. That is not my true nature because if I die this moment, my true nature will step out of this body and go to heaven. And when Jesus comes back, my true nature will come back and God will give me a brand new body with a different nature. A nature in that physical body that agrees with the nature I already have on the inside of me. That new body will not be my nature though. That new body will, will just be in agreement with that nature. It'll be glorified. You won't be able to tell where my spirit ends and my body ends. But my nature is not this physical part of me. And, and the proof of that is... When I get up in the morning, I'm 
Every day I'm surprised. I walk in the bathroom, I look in the mirror, and my father looks back at me. And I think, where did he come from? I get out of bed, and, and, and when I first get up, you think, wow. You know, I feel just like I do when I'm 17 until I take that second step. And then you realize, wow, this is not like it was when I could get up. You know, I could take a beating at 17 and bound out of bed, go all day. It's, it, you know, now, as I said earlier, you, you sit under a cabinet for half an hour and you hurt for weeks. Why? Because this old nature in my flesh is dying. Day by day, this flesh gets weaker and weaker and weaker. It falls apart. Now, it doesn't mean that I have to walk in ill health. My true nature can overcome and overpower this nature of this flesh. But it cannot do away with it in the sense that it does not exist anymore. What Paul means here by that, that the body of sin might be done away with, that literally means that it's made powerless. My flesh, though it exists, does not have power over me. Notice what he says, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. <clears throat> you can find pretty much every one of Paul's writings, with a few exceptions. He will always introduce himself. Very first verse of any of his letters he says, I'm Paul the Apostle, a slave of Christ, or a servant of Christ. Literally, it's a doulos of Christ. That's a, a doulos is the lowest of the lowest slaves. You know, there's hierarchies even in the slave quarters. There's the, 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 the house slaves and there's the field slaves. Well, in the field slaves, there's those that, that are really get the nasty jobs and those that get the better jobs. Doulos, that's the one that gets the nastiest jobs there are. That's what he says right here. We should no longer be doulosses to sin. If you're, if you're enslaved to sin, then you are the lowest of the low of the low. But he just said, the body of sin, even though sin resides in this flesh, it has no power over me. I'm not a slave to my body. Now it will scream... It'll scream, if you've ever dealt with a bratty two-year-old, I know we all love our own two-year-olds, but man, they will test your faith. Gina and I went out last night, and, and, and we were talking to our, one of our, our waitress at the restaurant, and, and she was saying she had three girls, and one of them is getting ready to turn 13, and she said, I can see the first hints of those teenage years. And I looked at her, and I said, just keep one thing in mind. They will come out of it, but until they come out of it, you cannot kill them. You will want to. You will want to choke them till they turn blue and revive them so you can choke them right back down again. I've told my children more than once, I swear to God, I'll kill you and then resurrect you just so I can do it again if you don't stop this behavior. You want to do that. But, but, but you can't. Why? They go through this phase. Our bodies will scream just like teenagers do. No, you can't talk to me that way. You want to bet? We're not going to have lunch today. We're going to fast today. <laughs> Your body will scream like bloody murder. Are you kidding? It's like my son. We had, a, we had a church called Fast one time. 
And I have to tell this story because it's just, it, it, it's beautiful. And, and Saturday we decided, who's going to fast tomorrow on Sunday? What are you going to fast? And, and I had been fasting, so, and I was coming out of my fast. It's like, I'm not going back in. I've been fasting too long. I gotta, I'm going to eat. Ryan said, I'm going to fast breakfast and lunch. I'll eat dinner. And I don't know what Gina and Tiffany were going to do. And Ryan got up, came to the breakfast table, ate his breakfast, and Gina came out. Because I'm, I'm a typical dad. I don't remember what he said on Saturday. That's, I slept already. How, I'm not responsible to keep his words for him. She came out and said, I thought you were fasting. Oh, I forgot. Well, I'll, I'll fast lunch. Okay, okay. Church was over. Well, we had to have two cars because I'm going to eat. And Gina's not. She's fasting lunch, and I think Tiffany was. And Brian, she said, well, come on, honey, let's go get in the car. He said, no, I think I'm going to go with Dad. I said, well, I thought you were fasting for lunch. He said, well, I did. I fasted all the way from breakfast to lunch. And in, in his seven or eight-year-old mind, he really had accomplished something because he fasted all the way from one meal to the next meal. Well, that's what your body wants to do, although your body will sometimes cry out and said, you know, especially you have to stop for gas at the convenience store. Says, you really need to go in there and get that Clark bar. You need to go in there and get a Butterfinger or Snickers or whatever, you know, you name your favorite treat. And it'll start calling to you. Well, sometimes you just need to say, shut up. You keep this up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to starve you. I'll starve you till you submit. We can put our bodies under. We don't, we don't punish our bodies in the physical sense it's like you flail your body. Because we don't need to recreate or, or, or finish the stripes of Christ. Jesus, he, he bore all the stripes that ever need to be borne. But we do need to take control over our physical bodies because we're no longer slaves. Verse 7, he says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. If I die in water baptism, if that, and that is a, a signification, that is, I died when Christ died. And when he rose, I rose. Well, if I have died to sin, then I've been freed from sin. Well, that's a real profound thought. You know, I've, I've preached a lot of funerals, been in a lot of funeral homes over my life. I've never once seen a, a, um, a corpse in a casket get up and talk to somebody about, why didn't you, you know, you come up here and you're crying tears now. Where were you six months ago when I really needed you? Corpse just lies there. You can't tempt it. You can bring in some of the best barbecue, and that person can be a slave to barbecue. And you can take that barbecue and get that aroma up near that corpse, and that corpse will lie there and not respond a bit. Why? Because they're dead. You cannot tempt a corpse. If you, are, if you died to sin, you are freed from, from sin because you no longer can be tempted. Verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, and we did, we believe that we shall also live with Him. That's where our faith comes in. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now he's going to change subjects slightly here. We've been talking about Jesus dying up to this point in these first nine verses. About Jesus dying on the cross going to the grave. That's the death that he died. But now Paul is going to switch gears here just slightly. 
He's going to say, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Jesus died twice. Because remember, in, in biblical uh, parlance, death means simply that I have a separation. In Genesis, God spoke to Adam and Eve and he said, in the day that you eat of this fruit, and it says you will die, die in the Hebrew. It uses the word die twice. Well, what in the world does that mean? That means Jesus or, or God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will die spiritually and your spiritual death will eventually cause physical death. Which is exactly what happened. They ate of the fruit spiritually. They became unclothed. The anointing left them. They knew they were naked and they were separated from God. And eventually that separation for God will cause you to be separated from your body. And then your spirit has a choice. Well, it's not a choice at that point, but it, it has two places to go. You can either go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. And that choice is made before you ever get to that point. This is a, you better have your ticket. In fact, you know, it's just like being at the airport. You don't get through security without a ticket. Used to, you could go right up to the ramp and watch your loved ones get on the plane. Nope, you've got to have a ticket to even get past that. Well, we, we have to have a ticket either to heaven or to hell. But when Jesus died, remember, he, Paul says that Jesus didn't just carry our sin, he became sin. He so identified with our sins and our sinful nature that in, in the same way that, that the, um, the bull that they... they um, sacrificed on the day of atonement the high priest would lay his hands and that bull took on all of the sins of the people that they had had committed the entire year jesus took all of those sins to the point that he was baptized into our sin it just like the oil will penetrate and and, and permeate that leather Jesus was penetrated and permeated with our sin it mixed in every part of his being that's why on the cross he, he screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the, the anointing of the Spirit had to lift because he had become sin. But, and he stayed sin until the price was paid for that sin. And then once the price for our sin, because he wasn't unholy. Paul says in Romans, No one by the Spirit says that Jesus was accursed. That just doesn't mean that, you know, God will, or excuse me, it wasn't in Romans, it was in Corinthians. Um, it doesn't just mean that you can say those words. It means that literally you can't say that Jesus became cursed. But he took our curse and he so identified with that curse that it was as if he was cursed. And he paid the price. He paid the, the, the physical pain and misery and sickness, everything. I can't imagine the agony that he went through by allowing that to permeate his holiness. But when the price for us was paid, the glory of God came on him and he died to sin. That sin, he separated himself from that sin, and he died a second time. It was a separation. It wasn't that he ceased to exist. He has always existed. He always will exist. But he was so joined with that sin that he and sin were one. 
And when the Holy, when, when the price for our sin was paid, he separated himself because he was still holy. And that holiness is what resurrected and he left that sin in hell. And he wrecked hell on his way out. It says that he made a show of Satan openly. He put a iron collar around him and led him around hell by a chain. And he said, he is no longer Lord of hell. I am Lord of hell. I have the keys to this place. I decide who comes, who goes, and who stays. Not you and not this little imp. He tried to exalt his throne above my throne. I conquered him. The ultimate Trojan horse. Satan, I know. I love uh, Carmen had that song years and years ago uh, about um, um, resurrection. And, and the devil thought he had Jesus. Because he had to have sinned. How could he have died? The Romans killed him. No, it just looked like the Romans killed him. He chose death. He chose it voluntarily. But when he died, he died to sin. That's what we, that's the death that we need to emphasize. When he died to sin, I died to sin. And sin, therefore, look what it says back in verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's where my emphasis is. It's not the burial with Christ, it's the resurrection that I'm emphasizing. Verse 11, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word there for reckon in the New King James, a lot of modern translations translate that to consider. It's the Greek word logizomo, or logizomai, excuse me. It's a verb. And it's in the present tense. The present tense in Greek means that it's an ongoing action. It doesn't stop. It's a continuation. You constantly have to reckon and consider yourself. And it, it, the root of that word, if you go back, it's, the root of it is um, logos, which means word. And the root of logos is lego, which means to speak. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, I want you to consider, I want you to ponder this. I want you to use your words and your thoughts. And I want you to constantly and continually keep telling yourself that I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not something, the new birth is one time event, it's done, you're secure in it. Water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because remember, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Paul said over in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 23, that we should be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Renewed is a different word, but it has the same present tense. It's something that you constantly and continually keep doing and keep doing and keep doing. Every time your mind says you're a sinner, you're a no good blankety blank blank, you say, shut up. Paul said in Corinthians, I take every thought captive. That's how I cast down strongholds. I take every thought captive to the, the authority of the word. God says I'm free from sin because I died to sin. It doesn't have any hold on me. Yeah, but I just did it. I just sinned. Yes, run to 1 John 1, 9. Once you recognize it and you confess it, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you and it doesn't have any hold on you anymore. But we have this mindset. No, i got to pay penance. i got to beat myself up. And if it's a big sin, i really got to beat myself up for it. 
And I got to have a period of time here where I'm just miserable and I just think and wallow in how nasty and dirty I am. Well, go ahead. If you want to choose to be stupid, then go ahead and be stupid. But the whole time you're doing that, you're no good to the kingdom. Because you're not seeing yourself as you really are. If you, if you truly saw this was sin, my God, why did I do this again? And you confess it and go honestly before Jesus and say, Lord, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to deal with this. And he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you. And he says, now get up. Get up off your knees and walk on. Keep looking at me. Start reminding yourself that, that you are dead to that sin and you're alive to me. And get your mind renewed. It's what you keep going six chapters, you're going to get to Romans 12, where Paul says very plainly, you need to be renewed in your mind. And in, in that he says, don't be conformed to this world, that literally that word talks about being conformed to the outward appearance of things. But renew your mind to the inward things. Keep telling yourself, the real me is on the inside of me, and I am who Jesus says I am, even if I don't act like it. Especially when I don't act like it. That's when I need to talk to myself the hardest. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. It does not mean that your body is not going to scream and your, the nature of sin in your flesh is not going to tempt you to go do things. And it can, it'll run, don't, don't be mistaken, you take any practice, either end of it can get sinful. We're to exercise our bodies and, and take care of our bodies. But I know people that are so committed to exercise they neglect everything else in their life because they're committed to getting their body perfect. And they're so body conscious, they don't have time to be spirit conscious. And I know people that all they do is sit around and sit in their easy chair and eat ho-hos and watch TV. I don't, if God wants me healed, He'll heal me. Well, both of them are wrong. We need to do everything in moderation. Yes, I need to take care of my body, but I also need to realize that my body is not the ruler over me. As my kids used to, to tell each other, you're not the boss of me. Well, you need to say that to your flesh sometimes. You're not the boss of me. My spirit is my boss. Verse 13, he continues that thought. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God. Take yourself out of places where you are going to be tempted. For some people, let me just get down to the nitty gritty. For some people, if God calls me and he says, I want you to go down to this bar and witness to this guy who is really having a problem with alcohol. I can walk into any bar in this city. That doesn't tempt me even a little bit. I don't care. i be honest with you, I just soon drink water out of an oily, muddy puddle out here to drink beer. It's the nastiest stuff I've ever tried to drink. And I know I have people that look at coffee the same way, but coffee is the elixir of heaven. You'll have to drink that when you get to heaven. But, but alcohol has no temptation for me. So I can minister in any bar, any time, doesn't bother me. But I have other areas in my life where I am tempted. Those places, I don't, God will never call me to go to those places. 
Because I would be truly tempted and that would stir up things in my flesh that I would have to fight like tooth and hammer for weeks to overcome that. What he's saying here is the things where you are easily tempted and you are easily pulled aside to, stay away from those things. God will call you to work where, where you don't have. Now that doesn't mean that, that he doesn't want you to work on some of your weaknesses. But one of the paradoxes that a lot of people don't recognize, if you really want to be successful in life, you don't constantly work on your weaknesses to bring your weaknesses up to strengths. You concentrate on your strengths and you do the things that you're strong in. And you run towards your strengths and you don't have time to, to be tempted by your weaknesses. People will, I heard people, well, we need to strengthen our weaknesses. No, just ignore them. It doesn't mean that, that you may not have to work on them at times. But that's where God's leading comes in. He'll tell you what you need to be led with. But he's going to call you to your strengths. That's why he gave you those strengths. So you could use those to help other people and, and minister to other people. And then verse 14, for sin shall not. Most powerful words in the English language. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. We need to water baptism and the baptism of the Spirit. They're both things that are, we have to continually do. And it, it, it's, it, it, there is physical activity, but there is also a, a mental and, and a renewing of our mind to keep ourselves in, and reminded constantly Reckon yourself, consider yourself, talk to yourself. When, when, when you're wanting to be pulled over here, say, no, 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 no. I'm not going there. I'm dead to that. That pulls me. That has a real strong urge that my body wants to do that. But I'm, go I'm going this way. And you talk to yourself and you keep reminding yourself. I, I had, the, and I'll, I'll finish with this one illustration. I had a guy that, that once, he was um, a smoker. And I'm a reform smoker. I haven't had a cigarette in 38 years. No temptation for cigarettes to me. I get near the smell, it just... Ugh. But this guy was hooked, and believe me, I was hooked. Oh, Lord, the hardest thing I ever did was give up cigarettes. They, it, that thing had a hook in me, and it was tough to, to fight it. But this guy, he just went to the Lord, and he said, Lord, how do I, get, how do, I do this? And the Lord just spoke to, this, to him this privately. He said, every time you light up a cigarette, he said, I want you to light it up. When you inhale, he said, I want you to hold that cigarette and say, I'm doing this to the glory of God. And he said, and then I want you to check how you feel on the inside. And he said, and I did that. And he said, the first time I did it, I thought, that doesn't feel good. And he said, and the more I did it, and the more I did it. And he said, and it took months, maybe years, to, to finally break the habit. But he said, I just, I, I realized this is not glorifying God. This is something I need to give up. And we pick on cigarettes, but you, there are lots of areas. For some of you, it may be ice cream. What could be evil with ice cream? Nothing. Unless you're addicted to it. Unless you have a hard time going to bed unless you've had your bowl of ice cream. I don't know why, who, I'm, who that was for. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the habit, what the practice. 
If you have to have it, I would, I would say this is something I need to... It's the old saying that, you, you know, somebody says, look, I can put down alcohol anytime I want to. Okay, then do it. Well, I don't want to. Then maybe you really have more of a problem than you realize. If, you, if anything that, that is a habitual part of me that I, I start to say, well, I'm not going to do this. And I realize this has just become a habit in my life and it's a distraction. may not be what we would consider a gross sin, but it's distracting me from doing things that I really ought to do or want to do. Then I'm going to say, okay, that's not a part of my life for the next two weeks, three weeks. And if my body screams and my mind screams, you need that, you need that. I say, okay, we'll double it. We'll triple it. And I'll keep doing it until it shuts up. And half of those screams, some of them can be physical. I know when I quit smoking, I was over the physical addiction two weeks. I had the shakes. Man, my belly would just, it was like a, a bowl of jelly on the inside. I just the cravings. But it took me five years before I quit craving them mentally. Physical addictions are easy. It's those mental strongholds that are hard. And anything that, that tends to want to conquer you, you need to just say, nope, sorry, I'm putting you down. Walk away from it. may not be a permanent thing, but you need to walk away from it until you've conquered it. Paul said it, nothing for me is sin, but not all things are profitable. And if it's not profitable, I'm not having it. I'm not going to allow it to influence me or control me or boss me around. The only thing that I, that I am required to obey is Jesus and His voice, especially His written voice. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.